Welcome to Studio Berlin, our weekly current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Sumi Somaskanda, and each week on Studio Berlin, we're taking a closer look at the events and issues moving us here in Germany's capital and in Europe. I'm talking to you from my home studio. Our guests will be talking from there, so apologies in advance for any popping peas or ringing doorbells that you might hear. This week, we're talking about China and how the coronavirus pandemic will change Europe and Germany's relationship with Beijing. We already know that the relationship between the U.S. and China has been acrimonious for some time. There are a lot of ways you can hold them accountable. We're doing very serious investigations, as you probably know. And we are not happy with China. We are not happy with that whole situation. That was U.S. President Trump speaking about the White House's possible investigation into China's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. But what about here in Germany and in Europe? Well, lawmakers from across the European Union are urging transparency from China with growing calls for an investigation into the origin of the virus. Well, let's talk about all of this with our guests joining me on Zoom. We have Noah Barkin with us. He's a fellow host of Studio Berlin and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund focusing on China and Europe. Hi, Sumi. Hi, Noah. And we also have Lucrezia Poggetti with us. She's a research associate at the Merckx Institute for China Studies here in Berlin. She was previously part of the EU delegation to China. Hello, thanks for having me. Great to have you both. And Noah, I want to start with you with the question uh, of, you know, in the past week or so, we have seen a lot of information, a lot of reporting about a, a massive social media offensive launched by China across Europe and also some uh, information about a COVID report that the EU released. Uh, bring us up to date on what's happened there. Yeah, well, we know that Chinese diplomats were instructed last year to show more fighting spirit. And now many of them have taken to social media. Twitter, I think, is probably the platform of choice to promote Beijing's narrative, to push back against critics, and in some instances, to issue threats. And this is happening all around the world, not just in Europe. But I think some of the most egregious examples have been here in countries like Sweden and France. The Chinese ambassador to Sweden has threatened Swedish media that has been critical of China, likening them to a a lightweight boxer going up against a heavyweight. Another quote from him, if I recall correctly, was, we treat our friends with fine wine, but we have shotguns for our enemies. And in Paris, the ambassador was summoned after a post on the embassy website suggested that staff at retirement homes in France had fled and let residents die. So we have, you know, all over Europe and, and also beyond Europe, very aggressive uh, comments coming from Chinese ambassadors, diplomats. And this is fairly new. We hadn't seen this before. China was always fairly discreet. Chinese diplomats were fairly discreet. So this is something pretty brand new. Lucrezia, how is this being seen by the EU? Well, the EU has been quite unhappy about this diplomatic offensive and uh, the use of both OVID and COVID methods to try and control effectively the coronavirus narrative in Europe and in other parts of the world. Um, someone says that at the beginning of the epidemic in China in January, uh, when the EU sent about 50 tons uh, of medical equipment as a donation to China, the Chinese government asked the EU to keep a low profile. And now uh, those same European leaders have found themselves overwhelmed with China's own soft power campaigns or what you might call mass diplomacy here in Europe. So there is a general sense of unhappiness and irritation about this, although uh, I guess distrust 
and skepticism have been going hand in hand with the need to still cooperate with China during and probably also after the pandemic. I think in Germany and France as well, there have been calls for more transparency about the um, outbreak in Wuhan. But then if you look at other parts of Europe, for example, among the populist Eurosceptics in Italy, so uh, the Five Star Movement, for example, there, I think China has found some fertile ground for its narrative to also take hold. So we will see. Uh, I think it's a very complex picture and uh, we will need to see uh, how this all plays out in the longer term. Well, part of this narrative that you've mentioned is the question of supplies. And as we mentioned, China sent huge shipments of supplies, things like masks and ventilators uh, and personal protective equipment. But some of that has been found to be defective. Noah, how welcome is this aid? What messaging, for example, have we seen from Germany on this? Well, I think it's been pointed out that that Europe and the United States and a lot of other countries were sending tons of medical supplies to China uh, back in January. So I think it's normal that China has reciprocated. And these shipments were welcome. You know, Italy, France, Spain, Germany, and, and other countries were all in dire need of masks. Now, some of these masks and other equipment ventilators were defective. There were people in China trying to make a profit to make money from this surge in demand, and uh, clearly they were sending defective merchandise. Now, of course, the medical and, and protective equipment that worked, that was very welcome. I think what wasn't welcome was the propaganda that went along with it. You know, China urged other countries not to make a big show of this, as I think Lucrezia mentioned. But when it was flowing in the other direction, uh, Beijing milked it for all it was worth. Lucrezia, has Europe for too long looked at China solely an economic partner without taking on uh, some of the political consequences that this carries? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I normally take 2016 as a bit of a watershed year. Um, so this is to say that starting from 2016, I think at least within the EU and maybe more specifically the Commission and uh, its diplomatic service, so the European External Action Service, have started to notice that beyond being an economic actor, what China was doing in Europe was also coming with a whole set of political implications. And maybe more recently with the whole debate about Huawei and 5G, we're also starting to look at China through the prism of uh, strategic uh, considerations. And even if you look at the uh, strategic outlook that the European Commission put out last year in March, just before uh, the latest EU-China summit, that too uh, has quite a heavy economic agenda. And uh, about seven out of 10 of the action points set out in that strategic document are mostly, uh, well, defensive points. So, you know, things like trade defense instruments and how we can respond uh, to China here in Europe. Now, obviously, we've also heard over the past year or so calls from von der Leyen herself to make the European Union and her commission specifically more geopolitical, including vis-a-vis -vis China. So we will need to see whether uh, COVID-19 will also make Europeans realize that we do indeed need a strategy that looks beyond the economic considerations when it comes to China. Although one point to keep in mind is that, of course, it's going to be hard to be a geopolitical actor that looks externally after uh, the COVID-19 crisis in Europe. And I think 
uh, European countries and companies will look at China still as an important economic partner. You mentioned the Huawei debate. This is the debate surrounding whether the Chinese tech giant uh, Huawei should be allowed to build out uh, 5G mobile networks, for example, here in Germany. And, and Noah, looking at those debates, I mean, how good of an economic partner has China been to a country like uh, Germany, for example? Well, you know, Germany is Europe's biggest economy. It has the deepest economic relationship with China of any uh, country in Europe. And that's not only on the trade side. A lot of big German companies have set up shop in China over the past decades. BASF, the big chemicals company, is in the process of building a massive uh, chemicals plant in uh, China. German car makers have factories there. Uh, They get about a third or more of their profits from China. So these are big influential companies. They want this relationship to continue. China is the second biggest economy in the world. It's been growing at much faster rates than Europe or the US over the past decade. It has a population of 1.4 billion. That's a lot of consumers. But I think you will be seeing more diversification from not just from German companies, but from companies all over the world. Um, Companies will be looking to produce in other countries in Asia. And this is a process that's been going on probably for about five years. But I think it's it's likely to accelerate in in the aftermath of this COVID-19 pandemic. Lucrezia, are there uh, red lines for the European Union here? What would the European Union do to retaliate if such a line is crossed? Or is there something that that China could do that would be a no-go for Europe? We don't have red lines yet, although I do think that it's very important that we start thinking in those terms, especially looking at China's increased diplomatic assertiveness and also China as a disinformation actor, as Noah was explaining, which is something that has become very prominent and visible during this crisis. Um, I think, you know, going forward, it's going to be important, for example, to show solidarity uh, when that diplomatic offensive is taken too far. Uh, That's been the case, certainly, vis-a-vis Sweden for almost two years. And uh, I think that it's important that we send out statements jointly uh, by the EU with all the member states to signal on one hand our solidarity to Sweden or to other countries and players that might end up in these dynamics. And on the other hand, we would be signaling to China that we disagree with that kind of behavior. Now, I referred earlier to the uh, new EU administration trying to be more geopolitical in its approach to China. And there's been some movement. Uh, Now we have a sanction regimes when it comes to cyber attacks. Um, Something that EU governments are now discussing starting from December 2019 is the potential to set up something that it looks like a Magnitsky Act, so a human rights sanction regime, which would obviously have implications for relations with a country like China. And uh, I think the EU also needs to start learning to tap into its own economic power and potentially learn how to counter retaliate when China does this to us effectively. And I think that's something that we need to explore because I see European policymakers across the continent being still too much influenced in their decision-making by, on one hand, the potential of China's uh, trade and investment opportunities and the flip side of this being uh, the retaliation power. But we often forget that actually the European Union for countries, even Germany, who's 
uh, more dependent on China than other European economies. Um, they are actually quite diversified, for example, in their export strategies. And we often forget that uh, the European Union itself, the European single market, is uh, the main source of growth for our economies. Uh, we also often forget that we are very important to China as well when it comes both to economy and also to geopolitics, especially now uh, with increased tensions between the US and China. So I think we need to learn to tap into that potential and learn how to counter retaliate. Quick last question to both of you, and uh, Noah, I'll start with you. What do you think is your biggest takeaway so far uh, for relations with China uh, during this pandemic and, and going forward? Well, I think, you know, skepticism about China and its tactics uh, has, has risen in Europe and around the world. I think it's in, in Europe, to a certain extent, this debate is sort of twisted by the, the shock and horror at what's happening in Washington. So uh, a lot of European countries, I think certainly Germany, they, they see themselves in between Beijing and Washington being pulled in both directions. And they say, see Beijing, you know, using propaganda, uh, bully tactics and all that. And then they look across to Washington and and they see, um, you know, complete dysfunction and racist taunts towards uh, the Chinese. Um, so that has polluted the whole thing. But I think at the end of the day, in the UK, views are hardening. You know, they've been hardening in some other countries, Sweden for some time. France has been quite outspoken. I think Germany is the big question here because Germany has sort of soft-pedaled its criticism of China so far. But at the same time, Germany is really needed to lead Europe towards a, you know, a unified policy towards China. And uh, it's, it's extremely important that, that Europe stand together when dealing with China. It hasn't done that in the past. Uh, China's been very effective in sort of dividing European countries. So Germany needs to, I, I think, be willing to pay a bit of an economic price in order to rally other European countries behind a united and, uh, let's face it, firmer, tougher position towards Beijing. And Lucrezia, your very quick take on this. Well, I guess I would conclude by saying something that is true beyond COVID uh, in terms of how I think Europe should go about relations with China going forward. Um, three main issues. One is compartmentalizing. Two is uh, revising our strategies to, you know, move towards something that I would refer to as smart engagement. And lastly, really drawing up strategies. So maybe briefly elaborating on these three. Compartmentalizing means that we need to become more confident about, you know, dividing those areas of cooperation with China with the areas of competition. Because a lot of the times we don't push back uh, when necessary, because we fear that if we antagonize China on one issue, then we will spoil cooperation on other issues, such as climate. And lastly, I think it's going to be the homework of the member states at the national level to really move away from a mindset that purely looks at China, as we said earlier, as an economic player without taking into consideration that China also has political and security and geostrategic implications for us. Uh, and I think that's going to be the job of different governments, again, at the national level, and really drawing up a strategy that basically uh, puts together different ministries to talk about China. So China cannot just be in the economic ministry portfolio. It has to be part of a discussion among 
the foreign ministry, the defense ministry, the interior ministry, the economic and finance ministry, because we need to have the you know broader picture and we need to be able to draw up a comprehensive strategy uh, on China. All right, interesting discussion. Noah Barkin, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and Lucrezia Poggetti, a research associate at the Merricks Institute. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how the coronavirus is reshaping how we look at globalization. You're listening to KCRW Berlin on 104.1 FM. I'm Marco Werman, host of The World. Our reporters and producers are following events in every time zone. Their contacts include doctors, epidemiologists, and public policy experts. Get the facts. Be prepared. Be informed. Listen to The World. Tuesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. on KCRW Berlin. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Oh, my God. One thing I really like in a radio story. What's back there? Nothing. It looks empty. No, there's someone living back there. Is a mystery. I'm not going back there. There's someone's hair. There's a head in there. There's a shrunken head right there. Mysteries explained each week. This American Life. It's Santa Claus. Resident Evil. This American Life. Sundays at 5 p.m. on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM. I'm your host, Sumi Somaskanda, and this week we're talking about Europe's relationship with China and how that relationship might change due to the pandemic. We've heard about the politics of this, but I wanted to look at some of the bigger driving questions on geopolitics, trade, and globalization that will continue to shape ties to China. Joining me now is Amrita Narlikar, president of the German Institute of Global and Area Studies, Previously, she was the founding director of the Center for Rising Powers at Cambridge University, and she focuses on world trade, emerging powers, and multilateralism. Amrita, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So, Amrita, we've been talking about the animosities between the U.S. and China and the relationship between the European Union and China as well. What about the view from Beijing? I mean, how much has this pandemic threatened Beijing's uh, global power? I would say that we're seeing a lot of coronavirus diplomacy coming out of Beijing. And many people argue that this may have strengthened Beijing's hand considerably. I, I'm not so sure. I think it could really go in either direction. To me, this looks like Beijing is very concerned about uh, what is happening domestically, about declining growth domestically, and also the impact that the coronavirus pandemic has had on its image abroad. And this diplomacy is very much about trying to correct, to improve that image. So what this means also is that we have a lot in our own hands on how we deal with the pandemic and how we work with China. So among the many challenges to globalization, would you say that this pandemic is the biggest? So you're spot on, Sumi, that there are indeed many challenges to globalization. And we've been seeing these challenges express themselves, for example, when President Trump came up with the idea of America first or by higher American. And that challenge comes from the fact that many people feel that the gains of globalization have been passing them by. They're concerned about inequality and they attribute it to multilateralism, to multilateral trade. Sometimes trade is just the easy scapegoat. But 
that that's been one of the big challenges to globalization that many people have lost their faith in it. What this pandemic does is that it exacerbates the challenges that globalization has been facing. And it does so in a very serious way. And so maybe the question that we should be asking is, is will the pandemic derail globalization? And my answer is, I sure hope not, because globalization has helped lift millions out of poverty. But this pandemic really needs to be a wake-up call for a fundamental reform of globalization and the rules that underpin it. So it really depends on how we address the challenge. Amrita, how should we best address the challenge? I mean, for example, could this be an opportunity to try to boost local and domestic production? That's a great question. And so what this pandemic has done is that it has revealed several fault lines, also within our own societies. But a big one for the question that we're talking about right now is that globalization in its current form seems to be incapable, its rules are incapable of preventing the misuse of the system by systemic rivals. And the pandemic has provided us with some really alarming illustrations on how dependent we are on global value chains and how those global value chains in fact might get weaponized. And so, for example, what we saw recently in light of the pandemic was countries turning to protectionism for critical medical supplies. As the number of deaths increased dramatically, countries tried to put up export restraints and the existing system does not have very much on curbing export restraints. Now China came in and China initially stepped in to help countries seemingly in need, for example, Serbia, when the EU came up with export restrictions on um, critical medical equipment, medical supplies, Serbia turned to China and China responded. But then China didn't stop there. Chinese diplomacy, Chinese fairly aggressive coronavirus diplomacy has gone further. So when India recently complained of faulty test kits that it got from China, it got slammed for irresponsible behavior. Australia, when it said it was going to do an independent investigation into China's handling, early handling of the corona crisis, Australia got threatened with economic consequences. And many countries, including the European Union, are concerned about predatory takeovers of their companies by China. So what the pandemic has done is that, is that it has revealed a bitter lesson, a lesson learned through very hard experience that the weaponization of economic integration, the weaponization of interdependence is not just a theory, it's a practice that is evolving rapidly. And in this case, really, really with life and death consequences. So what can we do about this? Well, we need to be thinking very seriously about decoupling from China. And that partly does mean, going back to your idea, uh, local production, domestic production. It means also, however, um, building closer ties with allies, with countries that share our values, that share some liberal values, and ones that we can trust for essential supplies when we face another crisis like this. Amrita, you're talking about decoupling uh, these supply chains, and you mentioned also how 
dependent we are on global value chains. And this is something that we've seen from the U.S., where we've seen authorities are calling for the U.S. to produce, for example, its own medical supplies. But really, global supply chains are very much an entrenched part of our global economy. So can that really be undone? You're absolutely right. Global supply chains have become an intrinsic part of globalization. But what this crisis has really reinforced, what the pandemic has really reinforced, that there is a need to decouple. Can it happen? Well, it can't happen overnight, absolutely. It will have to happen step by step, working together strategically with like-minded countries. And no matter how strategically you do this, no matter how smart you are about it, there is no question that a disruption or a deliberate breaking of global supply chains will shrink the global economic pie, right? That is certain. But what I would argue is that we can't just keep repeating the mantra that global supply chains have to be preserved for the sake of preserving them, which is what a lot of economists do. What we need to look at is whether the global supply chains in their current form can be regulated so that they are not put to this extreme kind of weaponization that we are seeing right now. And that is likely to increase if we take into account emerging technologies like 5G, the debate that's happening in Germany, in Europe, uh, about China's possible control of 5G technology here. And so what we need to be balancing is economic gain on the one hand, uh, but also security gain. And what I would argue is that decoupling will lead to some economic pain, but it will lead also to some security gain. And that may turn out to be very important when Mm. we are dealing with a systemic rival like China. And Amrita, just a quick last question. What do you think is the most important lesson to take forward from this pandemic in terms of how to work with China as a global power and partner? I would say two things. One, we get a lot of platitudes coming out from Europe uh, in particular, but also from other countries on how we're all committed to multilateralism and how we all need to cooperate with China. And I think the time for platitudes is over. This doesn't mean that we stop working with China entirely, right? But it does mean that we need to be talking about reforming the multilateral system, the system that has contributed to the exacerbation of this crisis. So the first lesson that I think we need to take away is we can't just keep pretending it's business as usual. And then the second lesson to take away is we need to be working with allies. We need to be working with like-minded countries. And for far too long, we have assumed that alliances are based entirely on material gains, shared material gains, but values also matter. And that values part of the discussion has been largely missing. At best, you hear about, yes, we care about values, and then very quickly, we move on to questions of profit. The Mm. two go hand in hand, because the kind of hits that our economy will end up taking if this keeps happening will not lead to more profit, right? So sometimes we see real short-termism coming from politicians who are being pushed in that direction by business lobbies. And what we need to be thinking about also is a little bit of the medium term, not just the immediate short term. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Amrita Narlikar, president of the German Institute of Global and Area Studies. Thanks so much for joining us. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening in to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Sumi Somaskanda. Tune in next week at the same time for another episode of Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM.